When I was in college, I had a couple of jobs, part-time jobs. Uh, the first was in my high school youth ministry, and then the second was uh, I worked at a local elementary school in the after-school program. So the kids would get out of school about 2.30, and they would stay till you know, 6.30 or so um, as they waited for their parents to come pick them up. And it was our job to, like, you know, help them with their homework, uh, play on the playground, snacks, generally prevent a Lord of the Flies situation from happening. Um, and <laughs> it was a really great job, though. I loved it. I worked there for four years. It was actually the elementary school that I went to. Uh, so it was just a neat, neat experience, and it was about 50 kids every day that would come in at 2.30, and there were four staff people. Three of them were kind of college kids like myself, and then there was like a lead teacher over it. And for the first three years that I worked there, there was this great lead teacher. I loved working for her. But in my last year, there was a new lead teacher over this program, a new boss. Uh, I'm going to call her Lori because her name was Lori, and um, I could... <laughs> I could tell right away when Lori arrived that it would not be easy to work with her um, because she made it very clear from day one that she found it highly annoying that I knew the kids and their families better than her, and, uh, which I'd worked there for three years, so what am I supposed to do about that? <laughs> but she, she was bothered by this. Even though I could tell that about her, I felt we had a good working relationship. Well, about halfway through the year, I walked into work one day. It was about 2 o'clock when I normally got there early, and uh, her boss, Lori's boss, uh, this woman named Carol, who worked at the school dis- district, was there. Now, I knew Carol because she's the one who had hired me four years prior, and she rehired me every year. So I was like, hey, Carol, how's it going? And I could tell she was not happy. So she said, Ryan, why don't you sit down? And she sits down, and Lori's next to her. And Carol begins to go through this long list of Lori's grievances about me. And um, it was this bizarre, like, out-of-body experience because the complaints weren't anything concrete. It wasn't like I'm late or I said this. It was just sort of like her feelings about what she thought my motives were. It was this very strange thing. So I'm listening, and she's painting this picture of me that I'm like, I don't know who you think I am, but I don't think I'm disrespectful and lazy and unreliable and all these things you're saying. And um, so I listened to this whole thing, and the main problem really was this, is whether or not her complaints were valid, she had never said any of this to me, ever. Like, I had no idea that, like, there was any problem on any of these issues. So Carol, her boss, finishes and says, uh, Ryan, I'd like you to respond to some of this. And I'm like, <laughs> okay. So I remember th- uh, saying, basically, okay, like, I could go down that list you just read and kind of respond to each one and you know, explain that I don't really feel that way. But, you know, Carol, the main thing you need to know is this is the first time I'm hearing about any of this. Like, I'm just completely caught off guard here. And then I asked her, which I don't think Lori liked, but I asked Carol, I mean, does this sound like me? I mean, you know me. Like, does this list sound like me? And she goes, no, it was so surprising, actually. And, and so she gets frustrated at my new boss, Lori, and says, it's clear you haven't told him any of this. So why don't you start there? And she just walked out. Needless to say, my working relationship was not great with her for the rest of the year. And it was so hard because I never knew where I stood with her. I I never knew. It was like, uh, okay, you know, I'm working hard. I think I know this job by now, but am I good enough? Am I angering her and I don't realize it? And so it really robbed me a lot of the enjoyment of that last year. My other coworkers as well. I tell you this story because I think the way I felt in that working environment is similar to how many of us feel in our relationship with God. Like, unsure of where we stand. Like, God is 
a cosmic passive-aggressive boss that we're just trying to figure out how to read, how to appease, what's going on here. And so we can get to a place where our whole relationship with God is based on insecurity. And that just affects everything. You know, how, how do I know if I'm making the right decisions? What if God has this path and I pick this one instead? Am I angering God? Am I going to alienate God from me and, and I don't even realize I'm alienating him? How would I know if I'm living a life that even pleases God? And so there's this just bedrock of insecurity underneath our, our whole relationship with God. And, and I think one of the results of that thinking, if we get to that place, is that the stakes of all of our decisions go way up because we've linked the way we think God feels about us to our ability to figure out the decisions we think he wants us to make. And so it just causes this fear, and it, it can be a crushing place to live there because the relationship with God is defined by fear and uncertainty instead of trust and security and freedom which we are meant to experience. And in the process, if we find ourselves thinking that way, our picture of God gets really small. You know, God becomes, I don't know, uninterested, callous, petty, aloof, unloving. That's the image we end up with, none of which is true. And we end up with an image of ourselves that's pretty small. You know, like God isn't, doesn't think much of us unless we sort of get everything right. Um, I think it's easy to get there. I mean, I, there's been a lot of seasons in my life where I have felt that way about God or thought of God in that way. It's easy to slip into this thinking. Maybe some of you today feel that way or have been feeling that way. One of the questions we received from you, from our community, uh, in pre- preparing for this series was, how do I know God's happy with my life, the decisions I'm making? I think more broadly, we can ask the question in this way. This is the question we're going to talk about today. How does God feel about me? How does God feel about me? It's such an important question. And if we take the time to understand this, it changes everything. It changes everything in our spiritual life. You know, Mark Twain once said, uh, you can't depend on your eyes when your imagination is out of focus. I think for many of us, what we imagine about God is out of focus. And so we need to imagine God differently. We need to refocus our lenses. We have to align our imagination about God with what he has told us about himself and about us because he did not withhold his opinion about us. He told us exactly how he feels about us. So to have an answer to this question, kind of a a well-rounded biblical answer to this, I think we have to look at God from three angles, and that's what we're going to do together this morning. And these are the three angles. We have to view God as our creator. Also, God as our rescuer. And also, God as our perfect father. God is our creator. God is our rescuer. And God as our perfect father. And when we look at these three angles of who God is, we will begin to have a clearer picture of his character and how he feels about us. Now, um, as we've done in this series more than usual, we kind of jump around in Scripture because we're, we're taking lots of Scripture to kind of uh, uh, paint a picture for how to answer these questions. So there's not like one passage I'm going to have you open up to. You can follow along uh, on the screens. With, with the, with the, if you are taking notes, maybe just write down the reference, the Scripture references, and you can refer to those later if you want to review. So let's start out with this first idea, God as Creator. 
and what this tells us about how God feels about us, all right? So God is creator. This is one of the most fundamental truths about God, and we discover it almost immediately when we open up the pages of Scripture. In Genesis 1, we read this, Genesis 1, 26 and 27. Then God said, Let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. So this begins to tell us how precious we are to God. He made us in his image. And if you read the whole creation account, you see that we are the only thing that that's true of. Of everything he made, we are the only thing he created that resembles him in some way. Of everything he dreamt up in his infinite creativity, we are the only things that bear his imprint. Now, theologians have debated for centuries about exactly what it means to be made in God's image. They have different theories about that. But I think the main point for us to understand is that God says we are like him in a way that nothing else in creation is. And so he looks at us differently. We are special in his eyes. And this tells us we are more valuable than we can imagine. Are galaxies made in God's image? No. Oceans? No. Mountains? No. Comets, no. Angels, no. Just us. Think about that for a second. Even if we accept this idea that we were created by God and made in his image, I do still think there's a risk that we view ourselves having been created by God as in something kind of impersonal. Like, Like we're all just kind of being churned out on God's assembly line, right? We're not special. He made everybody. But that couldn't be more wrong when we look at Scripture. That is not the picture at all. We see God as our creator, and as creator, it is a deeply personal, affectionate thing that he's done in making us. He feels toward us like parents do toward their children. He dotes on us. He adores us. He treasures us. He loves us. He likes us. He's proud of us. In Psalm 139, David reflects on this. He brings out the kind of personal angle to creation. Look what he says. I love these verses. He's speaking to God. He says, For you created my inmost being. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I'm fearfully and wonderfully made. Your works are wonderful. I know that full well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in the secret place, when I was woven together. In the depths of the earth, your eyes saw my unformed body. All the days ordained for me were written in your book before one of them came to be. God knit us together. It says we are fearfully and wonderfully made. That word fearfully might strike us as strange. Like, what's, is God afraid to make us? Or what does that mean, fearfully? It's a word that had the connotation of awe. And so, to say we're fearfully and wonderfully made, it's an awe-inspiring thing to see God do what only he can do, make us and make us in his image. And so it's a picture of care and individual attention, God knowing us before we were even 
born. He saw our whole lives, every struggle, every sin, every disappointment, every way we would disregard him and misunderstand him, and yet we were still worth making. We are worth so much to him. And Jesus spoke about this, about how thoroughly we are known by God and how valuable we are. In Luke 12, Jesus is speaking. He says, are are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, yet not one of them is forgotten by God? He's talking about sparrows. Indeed, the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Don't be afraid. You are worth more than many sparrows. Our hairs are are numbered. (laughs) That's how well we are known by God. The prophet Jeremiah, uh, when he was called into God's service, God spoke to him and he said this to Jeremiah. God said, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. Before you were born, I set you apart. I appointed you as a prophet to the nations. It's a similar idea that we saw in Psalm 139. God knew us before we were made. God could see our whole lives and his purposes for our lives. Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2. We are God's handiwork, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. Are you starting to see this beautiful picture, this incredible picture of what it means for God to be our creator? It is personal. It is affectionate. It is purposeful. And I want to make a very important point here. God feels this way about every human being who has ever lived and is living now. God feels this way for everyone. Our creator does not reserve his love and affection just for people he knows one day will love him back. He feels this love and affection for every single person made in his image. But God's design for our perfect relationship with him was knocked off course because of our sins. Sin came into the world, polluted our world, poisoned our relationship with God, and this impassable chasm opened up between us and our maker. And we could never make it back across that chasm. Our rescue was required. And that's what Jesus' death and resurrection was all about, our rescue So to know how God feels about us, to really know him, we have to know him as our creator, but also that second angle, God as our rescuer. You know, I'm always fascinated in the news by stories of people who get lost and um, are rescued. So someone, you know, a hiker who gets lost in the woods or somebody takes a a fall in a canyon and they're waiting to be rescued and um, you, 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 you know, maybe find out a week or so later they've been found and It's a story of their own courage during that time and then also this inspiring group of people who've been searching for them, never giving up. They're calling out their name, looking and looking. Uh, Especially a year ago, you may remember the story of the the Thai soccer team that was trapped in that cave in Thailand. I was just fascinated by this story. They were trapped. This is a cross-section of the cave. There's the entrance on the right. Two and a half miles in is where they were completely helpless to save themselves because parts of the the cave were flooded and it took expert elite like navy seal grade divers just to get through it to say nothing of actually bringing somebody out and so they are truly helpless to save themselves where they were they had to be taken out by these divers and it just came out actually in the last couple of weeks the fuller report of kind of how the rescue uh took place came out and 
these um, expert divers, what they ended up having to do was sedate the boys and handcuff them behind their back and, and essentially drag them out unconscious because it was so treacherous that um, if the boys woke up and panicked, they could risk their own life and the, the, the lives of the rescuers. So they had to be taken out one by one like that. It was just this amazing story. But the, the boys were completely reliant on their rescuer for any chance of survival. They could not do this. They were hopeless without a rescuer. Jesus is our rescuer. Spiritually speaking, Scripture teaches us, we were like those in the cave. Separated from God, hopelessly lost on our own. No way we could make it out back to a relationship with God unless he came in after us. It's our fault that we were in there. We can't rescue ourselves. Don't even really deserve to be rescued. But God, our loving creator and rescuer, would not allow us to stay lost and estranged. He came after us, not because we deserved it, but because he loves us and wanted to. And Jesus paints this picture over and over when he was teaching. Um, Here's one example, Matthew 18. Jesus tells this parable, he says, uh, if, one, if a man owns a hundred sheep and one of them wanders away, will he not leave the 99 on the hills and go to look for the one that's wandered off? And if he finds it, truly, I tell you, he's happier about the one sheep than about the 99 that did not wander off. In the same way, your Father in heaven is not willing that any of these little ones should perish. Jesus came to rescue us, not as nameless faces in some group, but as known individuals. He knows us. He knew us before we were born. We are known. In his eyes, we are all the one sheep that he went after. And he's happy to find us. He rejoices, it says. Jesus told parable after parable about rejoicing over finding what's lost. It is at the heart of his message. It is not a chore to rescue us. He created us, we are his treasure, and he desperately wants us to know him and experience life in him. If I had to pick um, a favorite verse or like a favorite moment in all of the Bible, I might choose Luke fifteen twenty, because it shows so much of what God is like and his heart toward us. It's, it's a, a single verse in the midst of the prodigal son parable. Um, some of you may be familiar with the story, Uh, The younger son rejects his father. He shames and abandons his family. He goes far away. His life falls apart there. He wants to come home, doesn't feel worthy, doesn't think his father could ever accept him back as a son. And when he comes home, he finds his father has been waiting, just waiting for him to come back, literally watching the horizon, hoping he would come home. And Jesus describes this moment when the son comes home in Luke 15, 20. It says, so he, that's the son, got up and went to his father, but while he was still a long way off. What a great phrase. While he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him, and he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. This is how God feels about us. He is not some distant, unaffectionate creator. He is not a begrudging rescuer. 
He's looking for us, desperately hoping we come home, ready to embrace us. That is the kind of rescuer that we have. And through faith in Christ, that's all it takes, we can come home and experience the relationship with God he desires us to have. Now, if we don't respond to his offer of rescue, if we don't place our faith in Christ, then we remain separated from God. This is the clear teaching of Scripture. It's like we're stuck in that flooded cave. We cannot find our way out. But that is not what God wants. He is ready, willing, and actually already has come in after us. But this is how amazing and perfect and enduring God's love is. Even if you totally reject him and deny his existence, he still loves you. Because his love is unearned. He just loves us. He saw our whole lives, every struggle, every sin, every disappointment, every way we would disregard and misunderstand him, and yet we were still worth rescuing. So God is our creator, he's our rescuer, and he is that father looking to the horizon. That's our third angle. God is our perfect father. Perfect father. The Gospel of John, chapter 1, it's this beautiful, rich passage that talks about the fullness of who Jesus is and his mission. Look what he said in John, chapter 1. He, that's Jesus, was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him. Yet to all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Children born not of a natural descent, nor of a human's decision or a husband's will, but born of God. Through faith in Christ, we are welcomed into God's family as his children, welcomed home. God is our Father. He loves us beyond description. He doesn't view us as a distant child lost in the wilderness. He sees us as his child made holy through Jesus' work on the cross, no longer defined by sin, but defined by our relationship with him. We don't have to prove our worthiness to him, earn his love, earn his affection. We have had his love since before creation, and because of Christ, we now can experience relationship with God as his family, as a beloved child. I love how John puts it in his first letter, 1 John chapter 3. He says, see what great love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Through Christ, that is what we are, children of God. God is our perfect Father. Now, some of you, when you think about your own father, have had... Um, a wonderful father, loving father. So the idea of a loving father is not hard for you to grasp. Some of you, however, don't really have a category for a loving father um, because you don't have a relationship with your father for one reason or another, or it's a painful relationship or a dysfunctional one, or he was absent or something like that. Um, first of all, I just want to say I'm really sorry if that was your experience. I can't imagine how painful that must be. But in thinking of God as our perfect father, imagine the best father you could ever dream up for yourself. 
or maybe the dad you wish you always had. God is way, way, way better than whatever you could dream up. He is your perfect father, and he loves you no matter what. And as our father, God wants to guide us into good decisions. He wants to warn us about foolish ones. Sometimes he wants to course correct. But he loves us when we make good decisions and when we make poor decisions. He still loves us. His heart is grieved when we sin and hinder our relationship with him. But his love for us is never in question. It's unconditional love. If you go to this school or choose this school, he'll love you. If you choose that job or this job, he's going to love you. If you embrace this approach to parenting or this one, he loves you. If you go through a really hard time and wonder if he's even real, he loves you. If you sin miserably, he still loves you. And when we go to him and ask forgiveness, he embraces us and forgives us. Through Christ, we experience God's love not in theory, not at a distance, but as a child, as his child, whom he adores. There's this tweet I read recently by Tim Keller that I loved. He was describing this uh, reality of being God's children. He said, The only person who dares wake up a king at 3 a.m. for a glass of water is a child. We have that kind of access. <laughs> this is the relationship of God with God that we have. And if we truly understand this and embrace this, we will experience a life-changing peace and security because we know how loved we are. Our lives are no longer governed by fear. Also, our decision-making process is no longer anxiety-filled because we can go to God for guidance, we can seek his, his wisdom, but we know that we are loved no matter what. Instead of wondering all the time if you know, what if I jeopardize God's love for me by making this decision or that decision? He saw our whole lives, every struggle, every sin, every disappointment, every way we would disregard and misunderstand him, and yet he still joyfully welcomes us into his family. So how does God feel about me? That's kind of the question of the day. How does God feel about me? I think when you look at the totality of Scripture and what Jesus revealed about himself, the answer is this. God loves me perfectly, personally, and unconditionally. He loves me perfectly, personally, and unconditionally. And if we've placed our faith in Christ, also we are invited into God's family and will live forever as his beloved child. It's hard to imagine God's love for us. I think we need to refocus our imaginations. I want to try something um, just for the next minute or so. Go ahead and close your eyes. Everybody close your eyes. I want you to think for a second as we try to recalibrate our imagination of how God views us. Think of those people in your life who love you the most, who love you the best who love you no matter what, no matter the choices you make. They are there for you in whatever way you need. They love you. 
They would be grieved deeply if for some reason your relationship was strained or broken. Think about whoever that is, the person or people who've loved you best. Now imagine for a moment that there's a person in your life who you know and you love who loves you twice as much as any of those other people you were just thinking of. Twice as much. How would you feel knowing in your life there was someone who loved you that much, twice as much as the people who've loved you best in your life? What kind of security would that provide you? What kind of feeling would you have as you go through your days? What if there was someone in your life who loved you ten times as much as the people you know who've loved you best? What if there was someone in your life who loved you a hundred times Can you even imagine something so wonderful? Well, I'm telling you, God loves you much, 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 much more than that. He loves you perfectly. He created you. He delights in you. You can open your eyes. If you know God, if you are in Christ, you are not at risk of missing out on his love. In Romans 8, Paul said that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. That means the alienation from God is over. You are not at risk of being estranged from God. Jesus has dealt with sin. He has paid the price. He has rescued you. As he said on the cross, it is finished. And you can rest in that. I love how Paul puts it. In Romans 8, 38 and 39, Paul said, I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. What can separate us from the love of God in Christ? Nothing. Nothing. God is your maker. He knit you together lovingly. He knew you before you were born. He is your rescuer. You were worth coming after. God is your perfect father. You are his beloved child. Have you ever seen a brand new set of parents beaming at their child? That is nothing compared to how God looks at you. In his wonderful book, um, God's Astounding Opinion of You by Ralph Harris. Harris says this, God thinks he's made you a fantastic, spirit-born person, quite a bit like himself, well-recognized throughout the heavens. When your opinion of yourself matches up with God's opinion of you, and when who you are lines up with how you live, the glory of God will be stunningly evident, and you'll be living by faith. If you forget everything I've said and you remember one thing, remember this. God's opinion of you matters more than your opinion of you. You don't have to figure God out. He's not passive-aggressive. We sang this earlier. He doesn't hide himself from us. He loves us beyond description. And we are precious to him. If you don't know Jesus, God still loves you perfectly, but he grieves the distance between you and him. And he desperately wants you to come home. That is how he feels about you.
There's nothing stopping you from coming to him. He knew everything you'd say and do and think in your life before he ever made you, and he still wanted to make you. If you do know Jesus, rest assured he loves you perfectly. You are part of God's family. You are his beloved child, and that is not going to change. You are secure, you are safe, and you are loved beyond description. That is how God feels about you.